0: Greetings and welcome back to Cast, the official podcast for local government nerds. I am Chad. That's Pat, and we have a special guest today—the one and only Doug Martella, uh, CEO of Go Virtual CFO. We've had him on before to talk about some accounting and audit stuff, and uh, you know, by popular demand, honestly, like, we just had to bring it back on. So, Doug, welcome back to the podcast. Everybody
1: loves a good auditor.
2: Great to be here, guys. Great to be here. <laughs>
0: A couple of days ago, Doug, you sent us a text and you said, "Hey, guys, we may have some issues uh, coming up pretty soon with with our tax billing because there's a new GASBY statement out regarding subscription-based information technology arrangements. This is GASB Statement 96, and this could alter the way that cities manage their subscription services. You want to just kind of go in briefly, Doug, and explain why that is?
2: Yeah, so um, it's a new standard uh, GASBY came out with and um... It it resembles closely to what they did with eighty seven and leases, which everybody I'm sure is a huge fan of. Um, but basically, it would take your your subscription and you'd have to amortize it over the life of uh, life of the the subscription term. Essentially, so if it crosses years, um, if it's a multiple year subscription, that could get kind of kind of dicey there when you're amortizing and using present value and uh, calculating all the liabilities. So that that's kind of the new standard, in, in general, that kind of came out uh, has to deal with all the IT software, all your subscriptions, the software you use to run the run the city and your finances, any any kind of IT software like that.
0: So really, what? Okay, so so real quick, this this is a podcast for local government nerds, but it is not quite on your nerd level. So can you just talk about like practical implications real quick? Are you talking about if you have an annual subscription to say? a software that helps you analyze your sales tax and property tax uh, data. And it begins in, say, July, and it runs through the following June. Okay, so that's, say, in a normal uh, city with October 1st fiscal year. You have three months in the current fiscal year and then nine months in the subsequent fiscal year. So are you having to book assets and liabilities and sort of wash those things out at the end of the fiscal year based on your that extra nine months that you've already paid for?
2: Correct. Yeah. That kind of thing? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So you, you'd book your asset liability um, for the whole period. And then in the three months in the current fiscal year, um, you'd amortize it at present value. That's how it works. Unfortunately.
0: Where, so where do you want to go with this, Patrick? <laughs> where do you want <laughs> I mean, to go with this conversation?
2: My, my first question is, is,
1: I want to be in the room of people who come up with these rules. That's, that's what I want. I want to know. Is this like a smoky filled room of cognac and whiskey? and cigars and all of these auditors I imagine there's around.
0: quite a bit of con- cognac, at least some kind of alcoholic beverage yeah, it's like
1: do they just sit around and they say to themselves how could we make life more difficult and make us more money in the long run like what 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 is it that why on this rule i mean i guess my, my question is is what is it what is it doing for cities to put this in their financial report
0: Yeah. Let's start with the, with the sort of good faith interpretation. Like what are the benefits of this that would justify the extra effort?
2: So to me, the only, the only difference between using a prepaid expense, uh, if you've paid it all up front and then amortize it all every month over the life of the um, subscription is just, this just captures the entire liability as to what the government is on the hook for in future years. Okay. So if, if it's already a
1: paid subscription, so say they prepay the subscription, right? Which is most of what we do. It's like everything of what we do. It's a one-year deal. They can cancel at any time. Um, and it renews annually if they so choose to renew annually, right? So on our deal, they're not actually booking under this new rule, right? Because there is no future liability because they've already paid the liability. It's still a prepaid expense. Well, what happens if it crosses years? Well, that's the thing is if it, if it crosses years, they've already still paid for that year cross, right? So if they pay us in July for one fiscal year, but the term goes into the future fiscal year, they they can move the expense to the future fiscal year, right? but they've technically already paid for it, so it's not a liability. I just went super nerd. Yeah, you did yeah
0: well, <laughs> in other words, if you were to have an annual subscription that you paid monthly, so you've entered into the arrangement in one fiscal mm-hmm. year, once you cross that next fiscal year, you still have the obligation to continue it, but you haven't actually made that payment whereas if you I mean we used all kinds of software
1: oh tons yeah
0: where you would you would pay the annual subscription upfront that's how we operate that's how a lot of people operate so if that's the case and you're on a year-to-year contract, then maybe you don't actually have a liability that needs to be booked is that is that
2: is that right I guess the uh, the language in here is kind of doesn't really specify that to its fullest extent. Uh, it's kind of like a lease. You know, If you have a copier lease, you're only leasing it for a year, but we're still we're still booking it as a, a right to use asset and a liability. So I, I think it would fall more under that category than it would just an expense and then prepay it and write it off every month.
1: So this is where I had so much fun during audit with my auditors because in, Doug used to be one of my auditors, so he understands this. This is where I walk in the room and I say, but that's not the way we think about it. I can get out of this contract at any time. I've got a 30-day out clause. I don't have a future liability.
0: Right. At the most, you would have one month's worth of liability.
1: That's correct, right? So, uh, you know, look at that. Or 90 days yeah.
0: or whatever that term happens.
1: The to other me. side of this equation is, I mean, let's let's talk about this from like a a real, like sizable contract, right? Let's uh, Cities that are using Tyler technology, right? Munis, those software packages, which do have multiple year agreements, They're not just a one-year, every-year subscription. You buy a large amount of that software upfront. You have, you know, kind of the onboarding process that costs substantially, and then you have what they call their maintenance agreements, Doug. And if I remember correctly, I think that's how they they do it. So the ENCODE side, you know, there's an annual maintenance agreement that you pay every year, and you're on the hook for that contractually. That makes sense, and and maybe it does. Is there is there a calculation that's going to be done in this that shows the actual cost of that software from an amortized standpoint. Like my maintenance agreement is $90,000 a year. Thus for if you amortize that over 20 years, it's actually like a $4 million piece of software.
2: Yeah. I, don't, I mean, that could be classified as just a maintenance agreement, right? Not necessarily a, you know, a, a subscription. A subscription. Um, oh boy. Loophole notification. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a, it looks like there is a clause under here for a 12 month or less uh subscription. So I guess what we're what we're generally talking about is anything 12 months or more that uh would be affected, which you know, if if you're talking about that ENCODE contract and it it doesn't really fall under the maintenance category, then yeah, it could be could be hit with this standard. Yeah, I mean I, I think ENCODE calls it a maintenance agreement because they were
1: a software as a service provider before that was even like a term, right? I mean, they, they figured out long-term that cities want to make sure that their software operates correctly. And so ENCODE would sell them the actual physical software and then maintain that software for them, which was just a really early version of software as a service in, in my opinion. Um, so I don't know if the maintenance side would really allow you to get away from that. That's an interesting take. Um, but I mean, the, the reality is, is there's not a lot of providers out there that operate like we do, right? From a 12 months or less, no strings attached, no contract, cancel any time perspective, right?
0: Well, so this is 12 months or less, including options to extend. Right. So even though it's an annual thing, if there's an option to extend it, then it would be included. So I didn't see that 12-month contract. And that kind of makes some of my critique a little bit less... Um, Valid a
1: sting out of the out of the uh, B-Stinger there.
0: Yeah, because I mean I was thinking about the net effect of this would be to centralize everything, even small things like Adobe Acrobat, right? Like you have to pay a $12 a month subscription to mm-hmm. Acrobat now. And and especially in I mean in big cities, you're already gonna have a lot of centralization, right? But Sometimes you just don't want to go through IT to get a subscription to Acrobat or you know something small like that, or some random one-off software that may be an annual contract, and now that has to be also reported and and accounted for this way. But yeah, so well, my
1: biggest criticism of this
0: now I kind of feel like eh. yeah <laughs> because if if it's only a twelve month contract, uh, on like on your just traditional software as a service things. Then, it, then it actually would not be
1: caught up in this mess. But you know, when you when you're subscribing to Adobe Acrobat, you're not subscribing for annual contracts. You're on a monthly plan that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Yeah, I guess I guess it would have to. I mean,
0: the option to extend, I guess, would would be indefinite. And then the know. question
1: is, the auditor gonna, is the auditor going to walk into every CM and ACM office or finance director's office and say, "What's your intent?" with the software package that somebody put on their credit card over in parks. <laughs> I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah, so it actually doesn't even matter because it says, uh, regardless of the probability of those options being
1: exercised, yeah.
0: as long as those options exist, then they get added to the subscription term. And if that's more than 12 months and it falls under correct.
1: This. So, I mean, it's, it just, it seems very unlikely. My biggest criticism of this is, is not that we're tracking it. I, I don't think it's a terrible idea for cities to actually look into tracking us. I mean, um, you know, subscription as a service is a is a good business model for a reason. Uh, but it does save governmental entities a lot of money up front because they're not paying to build that software themselves. Like the old school, um, you know, A four hundred style softwares that everything was developed specifically for that community. Right now, you now you have like a base code that is a is a subscription model, and that that is probably cheaper, and it allows you to kind of keep up with where software development and things like that are going to stay on the cutting edge of of what is available out there. It also forces the company to stay on that cutting edge.
0: So here's the benefit of the subscription software. A, it costs you less up front. Mm-hmm. It does cost more over time, but it costs you less upfront because you're paying it on a monthly or annual basis, as opposed to what we used to do, which was just buy a piece of software that might get some security updates, but you would just I mean you just buy it on a CD mm. when you when you actually buy and own a piece of software the the step-up cost for each new you know iteration of that software is significantly higher mm. and the subscription not only costs you less in the short term but it also provides the incentive to continue to improve that software right because there's ongoing payments they're not people aren't relying on that next version. So what tends to happen whenever, before subscription models came about is that you would get all this development into version one, right? And then you sell version one. And again, maybe you have some security updates or some minor feature updates, but then all of the programming effort goes into version two, which is a full paid upgrade, mm-hmm. right? And so you're, you're kind of left on this dying software. Like as soon as you buy it, it's, it's basically end of life. And so the subscription model does allow your vendor, it gives them an incentive to continue to iterate and improve. Uh, so even though it technically does probably cost more over time, you theoretically are getting more out of it over time. Right. So it's, it's just a trade off, not necessarily better or worse. It's just a trade off,
1: but there's no threshold. My big concern. right? I mean, that's, that's, a- there's, no threshold. there's no threshold, which is the, the, the,
0: the, it's the,
1: what is the term time? Sorry, Chad. What's that
0: material, material, Yeah,
1: material. There used to be material. this term. You used to tell us all the time when, when we work together that you only have to worry about the material items. Can you explain that a little bit about what that threshold
2: typically is? Uh, it all depends on the size of the government, Pat. So, you know, there's, there's a big calculation that goes into it. Um, when we used to do audits that comes up with a materiality number, um, And we kind of use that number as a gauge for transactions uh, to kind of just kind of see, go through their general ledger and uh, pull out transactions that are, you know, maybe in question over that amount, uh, look for transactions around that amount and above. Uh, That's kind of how the materiality works when you're doing an audit. In this statement. So we used to freak
0: out about, yeah, we used to freak out about tiny minor little things that we couldn't. Foot to the penny, and then
1: just like bad, turns just like bad that city it's
0: like two orders of magnitude below the materiality threshold. But no, so there's no dollar threshold. You could have a one dollar subscription that lasts for three years, and it's going to fall under this because the materiality is not the financial component; it's the length of the agreement. Correct. So one question is going to be: Does the option to extend on on small services like Acrobat. I just use that as an example because that's something that pretty much everyone uses. But even you know, in smaller cities, you have uh, you know small contracts for things like Office 365, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, not that this is the best way to do it necessarily, but you don't always have like a centralized account that manages every single Office subscription, um, especially when you get into smaller cities. And people just putting them on their P cards, right? So does that sort of, yes, you can cancel it pretty much whenever, but does it's essentially an auto-renewing subscription. Does that count as an option to extend? Or does it have to be like a written formal contract that specifies, of course, I've never read the fine print in an Office 365 subscription. Maybe it does have that language in there, and then therefore it would fall into this category. And if so, getting back to sort of what my original concern with this was, is that it really does kind of force a top-down centralization of basically every aspect of IT and software. And it seems to me that a lot of these accounting rules tend to do that anyway, right? They, they they ultimately tend to sort of force a top-down centralized management for everything, which isn't always the best way for a city to be run, especially smaller cities where you benefit from the ability to just sort of do things that when you need to do them right to boot quickly and and oh i need this software okay i'm going to get the subscription real quick i don't have to go through and fill out five pieces like a requisition form you know for a tps report about why i need this software or can you please add add a new uh you know seat to our existing subscription
1: here's the ironic thing you're going to have to build a software to track the software and a finance... I'm not doing a, that. I know. I know you're not doing that. <laughs> yes. I'm not pitching a business model here. This this is typically, though, for our listeners, this is typically how uh, a business gets built by Chad and I, uh, is something like this comes up. And I'm like, oh, Chad, maybe we should build that. And we spent two weeks on it and figured out that was a bad idea. But uh, the reality is, is that finance departments are going to have to track this. And they're going to have to go to each individual employee in a city, in each individual department, if they truly want to meet this statement, right? I, I'm not entirely sure they're going to be able to meet the statement in its current form but they really want to do it they're going to have to go ask every employee what subscriptions do you have or they're going to have to find somebody who's going to go through every p card statement to find subscriptions like that's just the reality of it i mean grammarly so think about how many people at a city have grammarly subscriptions
0: yeah that's a good that's a good one and that's like what Anywhere from five to 40
1: bucks a month. Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's like 79 have. a year for the unlimited version or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, as a city manager, it made me such a better city manager. <laughs> my writing is terrible, folks. And Grammarly is my savior on that stuff. I mean, it just really keeps me alive. But um, I mean, most cities use that. I, I, was at a, I think it was at like a UMAT thing where they brought up the use of Grammarly.
0: I don't have a problem theoretically with the big things, right? Like your body cam software. Oh, yeah. Or especially when there's a capital investment involved. Oh, right. And this, this explicitly calls out the different phases of big projects with you know, prep and, and setup. And, and especially like
1: that. when that business model is ridiculously screwing over cities. Let's, let's be honest. Think about where Bodycam, we, we negotiated one of the first long term software as a service Bodycam contracts in the state, right? And look at what the cost of those contracts is now. It makes no sense. They were making plenty of money on the first version of those agreements. And now you're talking three or four times the amount of money per camera for software and storage. Come on. And, and we all know storage yeah. is not that expensive.
0: No, it's cheaper by the day, but um, you know, your financial software, you have permitting software. Like these are things that you're making investments in you intend to have, and in many cases, you're going to have multi-year agreements. And if that's incurring a liability on the city, then it makes sense to uh, to report that in some way. It just seems to me that there's a lot of ambiguity on the smaller things that you might need for a short-term, short term, but maybe it gets kind of wrapped up in this. And I just worry that, like, what do we have budget offices for? Like, if you're worried about how much you're spending and reporting it, like, you don't need to include all of this drama in your financial statements, especially for things that don't actually have Real liabilities—if you can cancel them at any time—but that contract says that it's, you know, a one-year with extensions. If you have a 30-day out, 90-day out, you don't really have a liability. I don't know. It seems like when you're, you know, when when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So, this is—we did this with leases. Why not do it with subscription technology too? This
1: is no different than my argument on building code, right? Building codes are written by the trades. Which are required to follow the building code, and if trades want to make more money on jobs, they make the code more complicated. Gasby,
0: it's like laws are written by lawyers. Correct. Right? I mean, it's, it's just it's this,
1: it's the same thing. You know, no offense to the Gasby folks, but it's basically a bunch of auditors who come into a room, right, and decide what should or shouldn't be tracked based on their experiences. They don't think through the actual operational costs that it's going to have for them to. To do that and, and and ultimately that's that's the problem.
0: Well the other thing too is when you're talking about stuff that that's that's that big it's not like it goes under the radar. You often need council approval anyway for these things. So it's not like you have cities that are just spending hundreds of thousands of dollars just in the dark on these long term software correct projects.
1: but cities have no major cities that have debt and other things that they you know are accountable for they have no options. They have to follow these GASB requirements, right? I mean, that's, that's the thing is you have to do your annual financial report. It, it, am I correct on that, Doug? Like, You don't have a choice, especially if you have debt. That's a, that's a requirement of your bond covenants, right?
2: Right. It, it's in the local government code as well. Yeah. As we're talking, it just sounds more and more like the moral of the story is keep your subscriptions to 12 months or less. <laughs> correct and don't
0: yes. talk about
1: your
2: intentions to renew <laughs>
0: so, no it's not even about the intention you cannot have an option to renew in the contract yeah
1: so and you know we are uh i mean gosh at all the cities we have we have what like three with contracts i don't know how many there are there's not many um but the reality is is that you know it's it's crazy that there's not like a threshold set on this. I mean, there should be some type of threshold so that we're not tracking down the Grammarly subscriptions of every city employee who writes emails. What you got next, Chad? You just want to jump in? Sure. Okay. We can move on. I'm a, I am am a little bit disappointed. I had, I
0: had this whole rant prepared. And then Doug was like, oh, there's a 12-month exemption. Kind of throws me off my game here. Okay. So let's talk about something fun then. I came across... Uh, it's funny how much of our pod has been stuff that I saw on Twitter recently, but I came across a tweet where uh, a guy was talking about incentivizing yimbyism, which is the opposite of nimbyism. Uh, Yes, in my backyard, as opposed to not in my backyard. The idea was residents would be owning fungible shares in a citywide REIT rather than the land under their house. Now, we both, or we all three of us kind of think that this is not really workable, but as an alternative is something like this, we kind of threw around and Doug said you said you'd talked about this in the past with someone an actual exchange a market to buy shares in municipalities same the same basically uh, thought process as you know the actual stock market, but instead of buying shares in companies, you'd actually have an exchange to buy shares in municipalities and then you would essentially own a portion of it you could you there'd have to be some kind of market mechanism that you built in order to allow for this but as financial reports come out, as new projects, as new development comes out, right, there's value theoretically that's being added to the city proper. And that would increase or decrease the interest in people buying shares, right? Obviously, there's going to be sort of an up and down mechanism. But this could be an interesting way for cities to get investment to incentivize particular types of development, right? Because like if you just live in a city, you're already there. like You've put your investment into your house. You don't to want it to change right like you're there you've marked your spot and this is the big problem that cities face from a development standpoint allowing people to actually become shareholders in the city could give them different incentives for development we have on occasion patrick gone through some of these sort of half-baked ideas this is definitely one of them but what do you think so i
1: i think it's a pretty interesting idea i mean personally, I think investing, I, I mean, I, I think it could be a substitution for how a city takes out debt. I think that could be one of the big areas, right? That you would do this. I think it's a way for like a city would have its own IPO, right? It would go out and say, you know, we're, we're going to have an IPO. This is the revenue we bring in each year. These are our expenses. This is how we are going to be able to provide dividends to, um, you know, our, our shareholders, so forth and so on. Uh, and I think that would be a very interesting way for cities to operate. I think it's a much more free market approach. I also think it will directly influence how cities operate. The problem is I don't know how you mix the fiduciary responsibility that you have to a shareholder with the fiduciary responsibility that you have to a resident who votes politically, right? I think that's the that's the big imbalance. There are people out there. I don't know a ton about this. I've maybe read like two articles on this. Uh, but there are cities out there that have gotten into uh, like the uh, the coin side, right? Um, and um, you know, like Miami has has created their own coin that they're selling and they're using it to raise funds for city purposes, things like that. I think it's you're talking about a crypto, yes, yeah, like coin. a crypto coin, and they they've created their own crypto exchange or crypto coin exchange there for. I think it's like the Miami X coin or something like that. I'd have to look it up, but. Um, and, and you can't like you can't buy it on Coinbase, but you can look it up and see it on Coinbase if you wanted to. Uh, and and you'll see that it has like a value and, and a market cap and all that type of stuff. So all that being said, that's an interesting topic. and there are multiple cities that are looking at doing that. Um, I haven't heard anybody look at it as if like you were a company, you know like a, like a true stock offering. I just think the hardest part about that is how do you how do you balance the interest of your stockholders versus the interest of your residents? Because your your residents are really driving the revenue of the company itself. And and I think that would be that'd be interesting. But I've always said the best city to live in would be the city that is so productive economically that they could write their citizens a check for living there. Like that would be the the best city to live in, or cut taxes substantially, one or the other. It's the same thing. But the re- the reality is, is that, I mean, we used to joke all the time in Hudson Oaks that if we could tax car sales, we would have so much sales tax, we, we could not possibly come up with enough cool projects. We would have to send residents a check in the mail, right? Because you had like more than 20,000 cars a year that got sold out of Hudson Oaks, something like that. And if you just did the math on that at a percent and a half and how much we would make on all that, it was ridiculous, right? So... We all hope we were Alabama, where Alabama has sales tax on vehicles. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a very interesting idea. Just the question is, is I don't know I don't know how you balance it. So I think the crypto exchange idea is actually a little more interesting because I think that that has a little bit more value to it.
0: So, Doug, I'm gonna let you jump in here, but I actually disagree because the crypto itself is it's it's not backed by the full faith and credit of the city of Miami. Right, it's just a digital asset. Correct. That's going to appreciate or depreciate just like any other crypto. Right. The, the problem with my my problem with crypto is that it has all the problems of fiat currency, and it has a whole lot more downside.
1: Explain fiat currency so a lot of people don't know what that means. Just
0: cash money, central bank okay. operated cash money. That's you know, I mean, like a dollar has no value except for the fact that it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, right? It's just a piece of paper. It has no intrinsic value. The same is true of crypto. It's just something, right? Part of the value, theoretically, is that uh, in most cases they are limited. There's only so many Bitcoin that will ever be mined. There's only so many Shiba Inu, right? They're already like capped out, and so now you're seeing uh, that that meme crypto sort of tanking. I mean, other than the just it is
1: stabilized a little bit. Don't tell our viewers that. To be clear, we're not financial advisors, but some of us do own Shiba. <laughs> the,
0: the the Miami coin, like how does it tie back to Miami's future? So they you know they're, what I mean? Yeah. It's just a thing, right? It doesn't actually tie back to their growth or their um, development patterns or anything else that might change with the city itself. This is just something that they built to make to bring in some yeah, money. Yeah, so the city
1: just basically built it as a as its own crypto and then raised money by selling it. And then eventually, you know, people will buy it based on what they believe the value of that digital asset to be. I mean, it's right. of the coin, uh, of but the it has coin.
0: nothing to do with the city's future. No, because the city has
1: basically stability. already sold the asset, right? right? The city created the coin, they sold the asset at its base value, they raised like 225 million with it. I think they technically could continue to sell coin to raise more money with it, um, but there's no repayment. Mechanism there, right? So people have basically bought two hundred and twenty-five million of this coin, and I think that's the right number. I may be a little off on that, but they've bought this this coin, and the city's going to go use it for public projects. Can you imagine if a small city in Texas just decided to start their own crypto and sell a coin and get on the crypto mean craze and 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 raise money? Maybe, but
0: I guess you could cash out there and use it one time. But the benefit of an actual exchange is that it encourages more productive development over time, which increases the value of your shares as opposed to just this sort of digital.
1: I agree. You know, currency. And it has the same benefit as somebody but, buying a coin. Why do people buy crypto? Because they're placing cash, right? For tax purposes. That's a lot of the reason why people buy crypto.
0: You know, so, so one option could be to resolve yours. And I, again, Doug, I'll, I'll let you jump in here. But one option could be is you know balancing the fiduciary responsibility to investors versus to voters and taxpayers is issuing shares to your residents and business owners perhaps, but uh, either based on, I don't know, parcel size or property values or just one per, you know, one per resident. Um, would you open your you city could, council
1: to become like a board of directors? So there would be like the politically elected board and there would be like the shareholder elected board. I don't think you'd want to do that. I, I just, I mean, like we're brainstorming here, folks. No, I, I think they could be one on the same, Okay,
0: but that could be a way to get around it is to give shares as a condition of residency, whether that's, you know, personal or business residency, but you basically have like, you know, like A stock, B stock or something. Mm -hmm. You could buy your A stock, or if you live there or work there or whatever, have your business there, you'd have this other separate stock, or it could even be the preferred stock. Um, But that would be an option or a way to get around what you're concerned about is by default, making those people also shareholders and not just second-class citizens as taxpayers who don't own an interest in the future growth uh, financially. And I have like,
1: like in my mind, I have like four or five city managers that are popping up in my head right now that I would love to have in this conversation. Um, but the, the reality is, is that that basically makes city managers more CEOs, right, of a, of a company from that standpoint.
2: Cities just, just aren't in the business to make money. And I think that's, there's got to be another way to incentivize an investment from an outside party. Um,
1: so, so I would always say that that's the wrong sentiment for a city. To be honest, I never ran a city that way. I was always in the business to make money, right? I always wanted to run a profitable city. I never wanted to show a loss in my general fund, right? That's, you know, but that's not how all cities run. You're 100% correct. That seems to be a little outside of the norm. But I, I think if cities would operate more with that mentality, we would have smarter development patterns than we have right now. I mean, that's ultimately, it comes right back to what we always talk about, which is, when you develop poorly and you don't make a good wise long-term investment decision on that development, it impacts you. And if you had stockholders who were looking at what that return on each of those investments was on a quarterly basis and you were filing quarterly earnings reports and things like that, we would know it in year two, three, four and five and not in year 25 and 30.:
0: One thing you could do is in those quarterly reports is have a standardized version, like a development report that shows the actual ROI calculations on that growth right so that gives potential investors and also residents and shareholders some ability to say oh well you're putting in this mixed use development but it's not like the way that you're doing it is not actually financially productive so like why am i going to keep investing in here i'm going to sh- sell these shares and go somewhere else where they're actually doing something that's going to be financially productive
1: and if it's financially productive one one of the big issues you have in cities is you only have like 4 or 5% of your residents who vote in your local elections right So if there's financial incentive to a stockholder who may be getting some type of dividend or something like that out of this structure, then they're going to be more involved and care more about the elections, in my opinion. Right? If I'm not getting my dividend or my share value is falling and I've got real money in the game, then... And I I think about that this is interesting for a city who may not have a property tax, right? Where you go out and you... You have an IPO for your residents to put in capital and sell stock and then you know, be able to, to basically benefit from the growth that the city's gonna have over the future instead of bondholders benefiting from that. Because an individual private company has the same options. They can go public and they can raise money in the public market or they can go sell bonds, right? It's, it's no different. It's just cities don't have the option to go public on the market. So,
0: Doug, I want to ask you a question here. As an auditor, you've looked at a lot of cities and their organizational structures and what they spend money on. What would something like this possibly do to what cities are spending their money on? Is it going to make organizational priorities change? Police, fire, parks, libraries, Like, is it going to change the calculus about when you fund what?
2: Well, I definitely think that uh, labor would be affected big time um, because in a lot of cities, you just have uh, positions that have been there for a long, long time. And that's that's how it's always been. And those are the positions that need to be filled. Um, but if you have some sort of incentive to um, maybe either make money or return dividends or grow your city by selling shares, um, just like any private company, you're probably going to cut some slack first. Um
0: so are you saying that the primary job of a city is not
2: just to employ people?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I that's I what that's I'm saying. First time I've ever heard. <laughs>
2: <laughs> is, it, is it a public safety number one? Economic development? Take care of the residents. Um, but when you know when I was at Hudson Oaks and with you guys, I mean the whole the whole goal was to be lean and and do what's best for the residents and what's best for the city. Um, not necessarily you know a job a job creator of a city, just, just to have a job there, you know, or another labor.
1: Well, the big, so, the big goal was, I mean, number one in the conference plan, no property tax, right? So if you're not going to have a property tax, you, you had to make decisions that generated revenue. You could not make.
0: And that limited long-term operations. Correct. And limited liabilities. Long-term. We didn't add, we didn't add FTEs unless there was real pain and we were not able to get our job Correct.
1: done. To, to the brink of almost losing employees. Is what we would do. I mean, yeah. to be honest, we would we would get an employee almost almost to the brink of burnout, and then we'd be like, "All right, we're going to give you some help," and um, or, "Hey, I'm going to give you a little bit of a pay raise, but I need to I need to see you stretch even a little bit more." Right, that's the other side of that. Right, but that's <laughs> they love me for it. That's now, not a mentality. Right? Maybe
0: that's not a mentality that most cities take. That FTE count is is like gold.
1: Well, right. I, you know, obviously, I think there's a big difference between management styles. It's, it's not necessarily based on age, millennials versus baby boomers, or you know, it's, just, it's just different styles. Some managers, you know, they have that badge that they want, which is, I went into a city and I grew it by 100 FTEs, right? And there are some cities that managers that walk in and say, I reduced it by 100 FTEs, but everybody's paid at top of market, and I have the best employees in the world, right? It's just a, it's just a different mindset there. Uh, but I think Doug is right. Labor gets hit pretty substantially. But I think priorities get hit even harder. I think you become a very lean, mean city and you don't do a lot of the extras because there's no value to the shareholders in the extras unless you can prove a direct benefit. So it's not, you know, it's just, it's, it's, you have to, you would have to tie everything back. So you'd have to prove that a library brings you economic development to your city which is going to be incredibly- Or property value or growth. property value growth, right? Which you're right. It's going to be, you know, so, I mean, here's one, high-speed internet. If you have a community that doesn't have fiber to the house in today's world, the value of those homes is lower. If you have a community with fiber to the house in today's world, the value of that home is higher, right? So there's probably an incentive there for a city to do a fiber to the home project. That's going to generate value to the shareholder, to the revenue line, whatever that may be but you it's really hard to do that with other soft services. So, and when people ask us what soft services are, Chad, what what do we mean by that?
0: Social services, community services, libraries, parks. Yep. All the things that are very nice to have but tend to take the first hit when there's a sign of trouble. But they're this, I, they're the skin
1: mean, and the flesh but not the bone.
0: So I have I have come around over time, whoa! Um, I still think that a lot of these services that we provide could be done in a more efficient and better. Wait way. Wait a second,
1: Chad is about what to get squishy. We do,
0: but I do think that there's there are arguments to be made for those amenity services. They do provide quality of life enhancements, and they make living in an area more attractive. Which services specifically right? are we now, talking about here, Chad? Well, let's just let's just imagine a very walkable dense neighborhood where you could walk to a library it may not be a huge central public library right like a downtown library you know in, in Dallas or Austin or something but a neighborhood library that you could walk to in 5 minutes or less on a safe road and stop by uh a deli or like a little neighborhood store on the way home and grab some food or you know just not like urban living per se because most places, especially in Texas and across America, are not what you would classify as like high density urban living. But there could, I mean, there is value in having that community aspect and having the ability to run into your neighbors while you're just out walking and doing things and participating in, in you know, community. I mean, we have lost a lot of social capital over the past 50, 60 years. And a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that you have to drive everywhere that you go in this country. And you're not like waving to people as you drive. Like Maybe you're kind of waving them as you pass them, but like the, you're not stopping and talking, right? And this is an issue that's, that's caused problems in uh, policing. It's caused issues in just general uh, neighborhood capital, the relationships that we have with our neighbors, right? And it's hard to put a financial quantification on that, but certainly there's an argument to be made that there is value in that kind of development. But the other thing too, though, is you don't necessarily have to make that as the goal in order to have a financially productive neighborhood or development. It can kind of be a byproduct and still get what you need. Um, one of the benefits of financially productive developments is that it, as a corollary, makes these other things that we like to have more financially viable. So I don't know. Doug, I have a question for you, though, because obviously there's there are a lot of... On their face objections to something like this and i mean truthfully it may be an absolutely terrible idea It probably is but one objection would be that uh, just like with the stock market it encourages managers and executives to focus on short-term gains over long-term viability would that not be the case with this too like how would you keep it from encouraging your city manager to focus on well i, I need to get the end of this fiscal year looking good and if that means that I screw something up no, I'm going to, I'm going to cut my street maintenance. Cause I'm, that's going to put my, uh, my balance you know, in the black and we're going to be good there. And then that'll kind of boost my, my stock value for you know, the next quarter or whatever. How do you prevent that kind of short-term thinking from pervading in cities? Because honestly, that's, we already have enough of that.
2: Yeah. I think it really affects your long-term projects that you want to do in the cities. If you do something like this, right. Um, I mean, you'd really have to come up with a a sophisticated comprehensive plan. That's five, 10 years down the road to attract long-term investors. But in the short term, we don't like planning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We don't like hamstringing ourselves with these long-term plans that sit on shelves, right? Right.
2: Because in the the short term, uh,
0: when I say we, I mean us, I don't mean city, the city management community. We obviously love our plans, but in terms of their abilities to actually be actionable and. Uh, provide flexibility as things on the ground change, they can actually cause more harm than good depending on how you actually put them together.
2: Right. I mean, if you're always thinking about short-term thinking, short-term thinking, you're never going to get anywhere long-term in a city um, in this kind of model where you're just trying to attract investors with your bottom line. So that could be a a big hindrance to this kind of stock exchange model for cities. What do you think, Pat? I mean, I just think.
0: How's that going to change your mind as a city manager in terms of what you're looking at for you know two three four five years down the road
1: I, I don't think it would have changed my mind as a city manager either way i, I always i always well, looked at my city it was different for me i always looked at my city council as like a business board not as a. because you had
2: no property tax path.
1: that's correct i mean it's 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 hard to have conversations with managers that are that have to be more responsive to five residents who get upset um i always spoke to those residents i always informed them but they never influenced my recommendations and decision making i i think is is what I would say, right? Um, I would try to influence those residents uh, and, and bring them to my side of the equation uh, from what's the best method to go. Um, but I was a city manager who always provided, hey, here's here's the options and here's the options. I This is the option I would choose. And this is why I would choose this option. I was not a manager who laid out three options and just waited for my council to make a terrible decision. I just didn't do that. Well, as long as you make the best option, the middle one, <laughs> right? Yeah, the old, <laughs> then they'll, they'll pick the, the right. Grad one, right? school rule, yeah. So I mean, but the the reality is, is that uh, there are a lot of managers out there that are just options managers. They they want direction from their council, and 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 my point in that this would be a great debate at UNT. Um, my point in that would be is that those council members are highly unqualified to make a lot of those decisions. They don't have that educational base. They are not in their career field. They don't know the minds and, and kind of the, the traps. And so I, you have to have somebody there who has seen it or can at least call somebody else who's seen it and look at it. And so I think um, there's a lot of managers that don't want to take those steps because that's a very, that's a more dangerous approach to management because you put yourself out there, you become the target of something if it goes wrong, but that's more of a CEO model. If a ceo decides that they're going to do something different in their logistics chain or in their sales processes and it doesn't go right and they miss earnings they have to be held accountable for that and and i believe it's the same way for management in cities um it it would be better if there was functionally a process for residents to have more buy-in into an organization rather than the pick up and move method which I've heard some people say, well, you don't have to live here. You can pick up and move next door. Vote for your feet. Yeah, vote with your feet. I just That's hard. Um, it A house is not a cash asset.
0: Well, one thing that this does is it, it flips the script a little bit because instead of the taxes that you pay being a burden, now you actually have ownership in the community in a real sense, mm-hmm. not just in sort of like an intangible.
2: Would this incentivize would this incentivize a reduction of property tax or an increase in property taxes?
1: I think it would incentivize a city to well I mean look, that's a really good question because I think you could have value cities and you could have luxury cities, right? Like you could have the Nordstroms of the world and you could have the dollar stores of the world. Like I think I think there could be different economic approaches for each individual city based on circumstances. But don't we
0: already have that though? Uh, I mean, you move to some places, and you know you're going to be paying a premium for the name on the town. But you
1: don't. That's the thing. Is it's that's not necessarily the case. Like, look at the look at the tax rate. Well, and
0: partly you do. Okay, so the tax rate is just one component, yeah. right? There are places that you can live where the value of the house is significantly higher because of the name on the address. This would be
1: such a good Dr. Kruger conversation right now. But it, that I would say, and and look, there's no scientific study behind this comment. And, and I may be totally wrong, but I would say that places that have value, that have increased significantly in value over the years also have low taxes, lower utility rates, and are generally cheaper to live in than places that have lower value homes.
0: So is this a, is this a heteroscedasticity problem <laughs> <laughs> or multicollinearity <laughs> where essentially you're looking at uh, you're looking at an independent variable that is actually influenced by other variables that you're kind of ignoring. So if the, those those neighborhoods or those cities with great growth are the ones with lower taxes, lower utility bills, is that a cause and effect scenario or are those actually independent?
1: You don't know. Some of it may be size related, right? But let's, let's look. I mean, I could throw a couple of examples out there. Just look at the water, sewer, and Property tax rate in Southlake, Texas, in Colleyville, Texas, in Alamo Heights, Texas. I mean, look at all these high net worth communities where people live in, you know, six hundred plus thousand dollar homes, probably upwards of well over a million, and they're probably paying paying less in taxes than somebody who may be living in a four hundred thousand dollar home in Fort Worth, Texas. That's that's the point I'm trying to make. Is is that if a city is run more efficiently they actually can provide better services and charge less to each individual stakeholder.
0: So are you saying that Colleyville and South Lake are run more efficiently than Fort Worth? I'm saying that. I'm not
1: saying that technically I would have, yeah, <laughs> I would,
0: is there, is, is there an element? It, it doesn't,
1: of, it doesn't change my argument that cities get too big. Right. I mean,
0: no, no, I, we, we yeah. agree on that, but is there an element in, and when, with that comparison, you're talking a couple of cities of
1: a hundred thousand, a couple of them are hundred thousand. and then one of them's Almost a, a million. South Lakes, at least sixty or seventy thousand, in it. We're looking it up, folks. Let's,
0: Let's go to the go Google. To the Google.
1: Ba, ba, da, da, ba, ba. So, but the the reality is, is there thirty two thousand? 30, okay, thirty
0: two thousand. You're talking uh, one fifth the size or less of, of a Fort Worth, right? Mm-hmm. Geographical. Fort Worth is a big city. Huge city. city. Geographically, yeah.
1: one right? of the biggest. It's diverse in, the nation.
0: Uh, in terms of the population and the landscape, the size, like wh- where things mm-hmm. are laid out. So like that may not be the
1: most fair comparison, but
0: I don't disagree that there are there are these things sort of play together. Like they're all interrelated. But I I don't know. I just wonder if
1: say there's there's already some like market driven dynamics there is basically what I'm trying to say. Yeah.
0: Yeah I, I agree. I think there are. Um you look at uh so in a Colleyville, a South Lake right you're paying you're paying for where you're living the environment that it's in you know Colleyville in particular is not going to let certain types of development there. They've been kind of slow to, to develop mm-hmm. Southlake doesn't want Walmart's right. Like they're going to have a specific type of development that they allow. So you're kind of, you're kind of, but again, this gets into the whole NIMBY thing, right? Like you're buying in and you kind of want it to stay pretty much what it is when you bought. If a Southlake, and these are just examples, right? could Highland park, it could be anything, but like if a Southlake opened up shares on a market and then all of a sudden was, trying to focus on providing value to those shareholders from a growth standpoint, whether it's actual development or just revenue growth. I mean, would that change how Southlake builds or Kali builds? I mean,
1: Southlake's an example of strong standards brings in strong development, right? Uh, You know, I don't, I don't know if I would change that development pattern. Have It's not the easiest place in the world to develop. It's not the hardest place in the
0: world to develop. But you got to think too, did, does Southlake have that market? Because, they grew a specific type of demographic of population where they got to a tipping point where now they could demand a certain type of development style. So, I mean, you can't just start from scratch and demand that.
1: I have a personal relationship with a couple of developers that started their career in Southlake, and they started the development of mobile home parks in Southlake, right? Manufactured housing parks. And so um, I think Southlake has generally changed because of the real estate 101. Location, location, location. It's in the middle of everything, right? And so it generally drives. I think there was some political leadership in Southlake that figured out really fast that if if they become more stringent, that they can encourage development and be patient for what they want. I encourage all cities to look at that. Um, it's probably the number one conversation I have with city council members, development directors, CMs in cities that are growing is that you don't have to just accept all growth. You have to evaluate all the growth that you're going to get. And a lot of times more stringent standards allows you to grow a very specific way, but it provides the glide path for developers to develop. They get more nervous oh. when they don't have standards than they are when they do.
0: So there, I think you need to stratify when you talk about the standards, because when you go to Southlake, there's a very specific building style, right? Every, Everything has a similar aesthetic. Correct. All these new stuff has an aesthetic, but you can build a traditional American sort of suburban retail power center that's not super financially productive, but looks really nice because you required a certain facade and you know trees and things like that. But South Southlake were- also has some higher density stuff Correct. that is much more productive than what you would see in a traditional suburban development. It so it's not just standards on what it looks like, it's also how
1: it's built. Yes, yeah, so to be clear, Southlake doesn't have a lot of traditional multifamily, right? But Southlake does have uh what I would consider a level of density that um uh, that created revenue generation uh, specifically to generate growth in that area that was positive, not negative. I think Southlake looked at, we have these core areas, we have these corridor plans, we have town centers plan, we have all these other things that are there. Um, and if we say, hey, this is all we're going to allow from a development standpoint, and we're going to be stringent, then that's what we'll develop. They were just patient, I mean, at the end of the day, and they they force it to be done on their terms. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. A lot of times... No, but it... Sorry. Yeah.
0: It does raise questions about whether this <laughs> model would be functional, right? It 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 because are you buying are you buying shares in a South Lake Doug, knowing that they have a vision for what they want? But I mean, it could take 20, 30 years for it to actually pay off. Like is does that model work if you're trying to actually operate on some kind of exchange like what we're talking about?
2: Depends what kind of investor you are, right? Just like anything. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, I think there's money out there for that, though. I mean, is, is Coach Purse going to change who Coach Purse is? It doesn't change the fact that you have to buy a Coach Purse every year, Chad. Right? Or a Louis Vuitton. Uh, no,
0: Louis, Louis Vuitton. Okay, but, yeah. uh,
1: you, you get what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't It, it doesn't also, change it, that.
0: It's not me buying Louis Vuitton. But it's a
1: gift for your wife for the every record. year, right <laughs> yeah. around the same period of time. Right? So. Yeah, I, I don't wear yes. one. But but the reality is, okay. although we did buy, nothing, we did buy Doug don't. like a more like suitable man bag, right? His, he has a it's called a messenger. He's got it. a new yes, he's he got did. a new satchel. Yeah. So Doug showed up to GFOET. Let's tell us last story <laughs> before we wrap all this up. So we got a few text messages from, from some friends because Doug showed up to GFOET in a very non tax looking bag.
2: There's uh, nothing wrong with it, by the way. There's nothing wrong with it. It was bag. it
1: was like Velcro and and and, and like
2: it works it's just old and kind of what, ugly. what was
1: it
0: it's it's an old laptop bag that we bought him like two you still years have ago. it doug
1: yes you got to send us a picture so we can put it in the show notes of how ugly this oh, bag is picture. so show it to me show it to me right now on the video so i can see it all right folks we're gonna put this in the show notes it's like you know was like an hp bag i don't
2: even
1: know oh it was like it's like an amazon prime bag that we probably bought for like 19 dollars at some point some,
2: some but like
1: that, yeah. he's got this 10 years he's got his 10 years out of it so so he now um he has now been gifted by the company a nice uh, leather satchel bag so he won't embarrass us at conferences. That's actually a very nice bag. Chad clearly picked that out.
2: It is a very nice bag.
1: Yeah. So, uh, but hey, we got to wrap up, Chad. Yeah. It's been real. It's been fun. It's been real fun.
0: I always love talking about these kind of crazy ideas. Just fancy where they go. This was highly nerdy. usually Usually they're terrible ideas. And this, again, this probably is one of the worst ideas we could ever come up with. But just as a thought experiment, it's kind of interesting to see where the logic would take you if that was going to happen. So, Doug, I appreciate the insight on GASB and uh, all that fun stuff. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks for having me again, guys. Looking forward to another appearance in the future. Thanks, Douglas. Yeah, now that
0: you have a, a better mic and a better bag, we can definitely make that happen. <laughs> uh, all right, y'all. We'll take care. Okay. Bye.